I like it spooky. Hey everybody, welcome to the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Jason. I'm Clint, and here in a little bit, we're going to go take a tour of the mines in Valentine Bluffs, a fan film. We're going to be joined by Tom Smith, the director, and Chuck Ryan, who portrayed the miner in the film. But before we get all to that juicy stuff, let's go to the news. All right, I got some good news that I'm I'm pretty excited for here. There's an upcoming documentary called Mad Props, first reported by Deadline Today. It's going to include some horror legends, Robert England, Lance Henriksen, and Mickey Rourke. Not so much a, you know, horror icon, but you know, an acting icon, action, good movies, kind of a weird guy. But I love prop stuff. I love collectibles. Uh, This is going to be a full-length documentary from Price Productions and director Juan Pablo Reynoso. Uh, It's already wrapped production, and it's going to follow a handsome nerd as he journeys uh, the globe to turn the conventional art world on its head, proving to historians and critics alike that movie props are an important art form as the greatest paintings and sculptors in history. What do you mean, handsome handsome nerd? I didn't get notified about this project. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know, right? All three of us, like handsome nerds. Come on. They dropped the ball on that one, but, you know, I'm sure there's people that more know more about it. But, yeah, it's true. Like, I think movie props are, as art are huge and well-known in this world, just as other art projects are. So I'm kind of curious to see where they go from that. I would love to have some cool props from some of my favorite movies, but, you know, I'm kind of poor. That's never really going to happen. So I wonder who they're going to get. When you get into when you get into actual props, uh, the price tag can go up too. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole collector realm outside of Outside of our realm, I think something I'd like to dive into if I ever get some more disposable income. Like I, I had a chance to get it was a prop replica head of uh, from Reanimator. You know the doctor who gets decapitated and Herbert West brings him back and he's in the the pan there or whatever. And I can't remember the amount of money, but it, it was expensive. That's why I had passed on it. Yeah, there was a uh, a show on Netflix like Uncon- unconventional spaces or it was something like that where it showed this one guy's house and it was full of like authentic props that he had slowly gotten over the years and I was very envious of it so I think it'll be cool to kind of see a full length documentary me loving documentaries anyway I'm excited for this no news on when it's coming out though so stay tuned keep looking for it we'll we'll let you know if we hear anything. So you say Robert England and Lance Hendrickson and Mickey Mickey Rourke? Is that what you said? Yep. Are, are they searching out props from their movies? Like, what is their involvement? I don't know much about it, but I'm just guessing that their guests that they have on there talking about it. Maybe there's somebody who found or talked about the glove or the sweater or the hat or you know something from Pumpkinhead or was he he was an alien, right? Lance Hendrickson, yeah. Yeah, so maybe it goes along the route of that, but I don't think that they have full involvement in it, but just, you know, being interviewed probably talking about stuff like that. 
I'm pretty sure that Lance and Robert both have the same rep as far as when it comes to the convention scene. I wonder if uh, Mickey is with the, the same firm or not. I know you can go to eBay anytime and find uh, dirt and blood and parts of the cabin from Evil Dead. And I'm like, where the, where these people just go to the place where it was filmed to dig up some of the dirt? What is going on here? Yeah, supposedly. They never trust it. I know at Living Dead Weekend at that thing they had parts of the cabin or they found a piece of wood in the woods and <laughs> it's well i would trust that more from living dead weekend from the from the museum there than i would from brian godzilla selling me dirt from dracula's castle on ebay but <laughs> all right what do you guys got you know how excited i am for cocaine bear right <laughs> yes so now there's a cocaine bear video game so it plays a lot like pac-man i was actually just playing it um you're the bear and you go the snort the lines of cocaine or eat them. And it's got people running around like the ghosts in the Pac-Man game. The ambulance will come through and then the drug lords will steal the backpacks. So you have to try to eat them. And if you eat all the people on the stage, you get to go to the next level. And if you eat enough cocaine, your cocaine bar gets filled and you run really fast for a little while. It's free to play on your phone. It's called... Cocaine Bear, The Rise of Pablo Escobar. <laughs> Get the fuck out of there. The Rise of Pablo Escobar. This will give us something to do until Cocaine Bear comes out. Uh, as of this recording, we, we still have like a week. Uh, so in the next five or six days. So basically, um, before you hear this recording, whatever, by the time you hear this recording, you can go to the theater and see it. And I cannot wait. I hope they I hope they have like like the the scream popcorn buckets. It'd be cool if they had coked out bear head buckets for your popcorn or maybe like just full of like candy so you get like a sugar high or something. That'd be cool. Now I've kind of shit on this movie several times. Like ever since I saw about it, I was not excited. I just saw that the, a preview of it again and I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of excited now. I'm, I I want to see it. It's just is that Ray Liotta's last movie? It's one of his last movies. I just got done watching uh, Blackbird on AT Apple Plus, and Ray Liotta is in it, and it oh that show's super good. And I didn't know if that was one of his last because in one of the episodes they're like rest in peace Ray Liotta or whatever, even though he was in it throughout the series. I just randomly came across an interview with him on the David Letterman show, and it was around the time that Goodfellas had come out. This means nothing to our conversation, but it was just, I just saw it the other day. And uh, what I thought was interesting is Ray Liotta is a good actor. I've always thought he was a great actor in whatever he's in. And he usually kind of plays like the cool, laid back, edgy kind of guy. He in real life was so uncomfortable, and he talked about it a little bit like he was uncomfortable around people and watching him he conducted the interview well but he was just shifting and kind of nervous and it, it was it was weird to see now he plays a uh, henry hill in goodfellows right yeah yeah henry hill is the name of the correctional facility in the town i live in really maybe that's where he's at oh the real henry hill maybe i don't know in this interview i saw ray Liotta was talking about that he goes yeah we're at the premiere of goodfellas and the real henry hill's there and i'm like he goes i don't know if i'm supposed to introduce this guy to people or not he's standing right next to me <laughs> but he's in the witness relocation program what you got for news clint well i was gonna say i know something that i should announce and that is it's me so i'm gonna talk about more george a romero stuff but this is why you should be excited for george a romero's twilight of the Dead. Even though it's still in development, the late George Romero's Twilight of the Dead, which would be the fourth, no, sorry, the, the fifth film in the series, 
Uh, it'll be an exciting conclusion to his famous flesh-eating saga. And it says, prior to his tragic passing in 2017, Romero had something special in the works for fans of his genre-defined series, Night of the Living Dead. It is concluding the original four-film saga that spanned half a century. Basically, this is going to be... Um, a continuation from 2005's Land of the Dead and focus a little bit more on the zombies kind of evolving into their own society. What comes up, what, what the finished product is going to look like, I don't know, but it says if you're worried that Twilight of the Dead will just be a cash in on Romero's legacy, don't worry. There's proof of otherwise. Romero and Zelati who is the last name of the other person, collaborated on a film treatment and a detailed document that precedes a screenplay essentially showcasing what happened to the zombies in the land of the dead while omitting the previous film's focus on human protagonists. We get to see more Night of the Living Dead stuff. I So much George Romero stuff coming out. I can't wait. Yeah, no, I figured you would take that story. I'm excited again for anything that we get. Just keep it coming. But it just, it does suck that, you know, he's not here to kind of see his vision throughout. But we will continue to get that good stuff. Where did Brian go? I was reading the article and I clicked back and all of a sudden Brian's gone. The zombies must have eaten him. <laughs> I almost say I think everybody's dream in life is to leave a legacy of some sort. And whether that's financially for your family for generations to come or an impact in the genre or whatever, you know. So, yeah, I agree with you, Jason. It's kind of sad that George isn't here to see this stuff. When I started reporting last year about all the different Romero stuff coming out, I kind of had this like feeling in the back of my stomach, you know, or whatever, like this is just people exploiting, you know, and, and trying to make money off George's name. but. I don't know. All this stuff seems fairly legitimate. And I think it is. It's just, it's his legacy and it's continuing. Uh, and you see that with the George A. Romero Foundation, not just with Romero material or zombie films, but they do a lot to support local artists, local filmmakers, local musicians, theater performers. Um, so I think it's all a, a really good thing. So I will be glad to support it and see more zombies. Damn right. It was the mailman. On a Sunday? On a Sunday. Oh, I guess they do deliver Amazon stuff. Did he bring you something good? They deliver vinegar syndrome stuff, too. Oh, just in time. This means that there's stuff for Brian to talk about, about why we are poor this week. Lay it on me. I'm going to start again. Okay. I thought you were just going to roll into it. No, I got this. I, I'm into horror soundtracks so the only thing i've picked up kind of relevant to what we talk about uh, my daughter was at disc replay which is a local um, trade-in video game movie music store all that stuff i hadn't been there in a long time she was telling me how they increased their selection of records and all that so she went and she bought a couple records and then she went back a couple days later and i'm like hey call me when you get there like let me see what they got and then she started sending me pictures of a bunch of waxwork records that i hadn't gotten yet uh the only thing i really picked up though is the killer clowns from outer space horror soundtrack from waxworks it's i love the soundtrack i love the opening theme so i was happy to get that because it had sold out there and i didn't think i would pick it up for a good price but yeah she found it for me so i added that to my collection but that's all i've really bought been watching a couple things there were a couple posters i really wanted to order but i never really did just saving my money we're getting closer to con season just got to save my pennies, but I picked that up. What about you guys? Anything good? I've got a lot of cool new t-shirts for you to buy. 
Save your money. All righty. What about the scream popcorn buckets? Oh, shit. Yeah, I forget. <laughs> All right, why don't you talk about that, Ryan? So uh, Cinemark Theaters put out a scream popcorn bucket and scream cups. One's bloody, one's not bloody. Um, The cups are kind of cool, I guess, but not that cool. But uh, Amaya was kind enough to go to the movies and pick up three buckets so all of us could have a bucket eventually. They're cool. I'll, I'll be glad to have mine. I don't know what to do with it. I already got a popcorn bucket, but <laughs> I'll put it up on the shelf here. Um, what else? Actually, she got four of them, which that's probably going to enrage people. <laughs> like, what? You get four? But we're not resellers. One's for my daughter. One's for me. One's for Brian. One's for Clint. <laughs> so Woo-hoo. they're all. No, and then she was so pissed about that, having to go and do it. And then she had to run out to the thing. She was like, she's my 19-year-old daughter. And she was like, I look so stupid running out there with all these buckets in my hands. I had to run them out to the car. It was raining. I was miserable. She, <laughs> she let me know how bad it was. Some middle-aged collector saw her from across the parking lot and she looked very cool. Well, and then um, I ended up going the next day. I didn't realize that we were going to be going to the theater so soon, but my wife wanted to go see uh, Knock at the Cabin. So we went and saw that and they had a strict limit out there now that it was like limit one per customer or something. So I'm like, oh, I was glad she got the right person to sell her for right out of the bat. Yeah, because Clint, do you have Cinemarks up there? I've got one in Ann Arbor, so it's about about a 40-minute drive for me. And that's the preferred theater that we like to go to around here. It's the nicest theater, so yeah, I was glad to pick those up. Thanks for reminding me, Brian. I totally forgot about those, even though it was like two days ago. So the first thing that I picked up, or I, I didn't pick this up, a friend of mine picked this up for me. It's a greasy strangler toy from Bootleg as Fuck Toys. <laughs> What what is that? Disco balls and disco balls and a condom. <laughs> nice, nice. It's either a really big condom or it's two condoms, and it might be full of grease. So I got that from a friend, and then I got my My Valley Valentine cards too. Fright rags. Open them. No, I'm not gonna open. Clint, them. open yours. Let's compare. No, hell no. So the coolest thing I have to show, and I'm going to put this on the YouTube channel. So if you want to see this, check out the YouTube channel, the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast YouTube channel. This is from last year? Last year, Jason? The year before? Two years ago. So this is a Valentine Bluffs heart. So they sculpted this heart like a, it's a actual, well, it's not an actual human heart, but it's sculpted <laughs> to look like an actual human heart. And it's a, a foam latex rubber heart. And it's got a cool stand with hearts on the ends. And it's autographed by Chuck Ryan, who played the miner in the movie. And then Tom Smith, who was the director. Uh, the guy that sculpted it has autographed it too. And it's from Horror Express Studios. So I was at Flashback. We went because I wanted to meet Peter Cowper. And uh, the guys from Valentine Bluffs were there. Chuck was there as the miner. And they were promoting the movie. And they had this on the table and it was 50 bucks. And I was like, I, I got to buy that hard. It's just so cool. I was pretty jealous of it. So it's been sitting. Yeah, it's been sitting up there for a couple of years. So it's just really cool. It's one of those I've talked several times about transitioning just to return to living dead and uh, the last drive in stuff. But I don't think this one will ever go anywhere. Well, let me know. Right. I was going to say, I've got quite, I know where it can go if you ever wanted to. I like that because the, the heart is, it's like a one-to-one scale. It's, you know, it looks like an average size, real real size heart. The Horror Express, I think is what it is, as you said there, that was one of the sponsors for their Indiegogo campaign for their film project. Cool piece. Yeah, it fell on the floor and blood everywhere. No. <laughs> He's like, I love this thing. Plop, splat. I also got a, 
a vinegar syndrome shipment on a Sunday. But I think I'll leave that till next episode. Yeah, I think it'll be a nice tease to on next episode of I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast, Vinegar Syndrome. What about you, Clint? What'd you get? I'm so poor, I can't even afford to talk about anything. You guys stole the scream popcorn bucket thing from me, so. Oh, damn it, Brian. No, so I didn't know anything about the scream popcorn buckets. Jason reached out and, you know, asked if if we wanted one. And yeah, sent his daughter to uh, to get us one. And then I saw they had the drink cups and then I saw they had a plushie. And then I, was, I wasn't going to ask because it's, oh, can you also go get this? Can you go get this? The popcorn bucket's cool as hell. I appreciate you picking it up. And yeah, I've seen people, you said they put a limit on that now. I've seen people in different collector sites on Facebook that I'm on getting pissed at other people, rightfully so to a degree, but people are, were going and buying like boxes of them and then turning around and, and selling them because the Scream did the same thing for the last Scream that came out a couple of years ago. And now it's like, what, on eBay, excuse me, on eBay, it's like uh, hundreds of dollars for one of these like $15 items. So yeah, these collectors, collector sites are getting mad at scalpers going and buying them all up and then trying to make top dollar on them. But I was lucky enough to get one from Jason, so thank you. Uh, I had offered, I told Brian about the cups and I went the next day and they had the cups there and I thought about getting them. But then I, I felt bad. I messaged, I didn't get him one. And then I messaged him. I'm like, oh, those were honestly dorky as shit, like is what I said. <laughs> They're like just little square plastic things. People probably love them, but I just, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I'm not even going to waste my time with this, which was kind of like a jerk move of me. If he wanted one, I should have just got him one, but I was kind of letting him know like, eh, I don't think you care about this thing. And same with you, Clint. But if I would have known you guys like really wanted them, I should have. No, I was, I was on the fence. I couldn't even figure it out. The first few pictures I saw of it online, people that had them, it looked like to me, just like something you like clipped onto a cup or whatever and then i finally saw a picture where it was a little more 3d and i was like oh it's a weird little ghost face shaped cup i don't know i i didn't want it the popcorn bucket's cool so it was like ghost face mixed with minecraft like that that squared off figure yeah exactly yeah it was weird the popcorn buckets those are dope as shit like <laughs> yeah i like those and, and i don't care about the the plush either i brian plays with dolls i leave mine in their packages so <laughs> I did grab uh, I did grab one more thing this week, and it uh, it was part of the uh, My Bloody Valentine Stop the Killer pre-order stuff, and that is my 16 by 20 autographed poster came in. It was autographed by George Mahalka, director of the original My Bloody Valentine. It's cool. All the artwork is artwork from the game, so it's kind of more of a, a, a graphic novel type recreation of scenes from the film that you can get with the game on a 16 by 20 print it's it was folded which i knew that which i'm not a big fan of the folded posters but whatever i'm glad that he signed it but they were supposed to reach out to everybody individually because he was going to personalize them all and ask how you wanted it signed and i was going to request just a signature um i never got the email i'm not mad and he personalized it, which again, I'm, I didn't want to personalize, but I'm not upset. It's, it's a beautiful print and I've got George Mahalka's autograph and it's now part of my, my bloody Valentine, Valentine Bluffs collection. So pretty cool stuff. Oh, that was part of the Kickstarter from the game that you had ordered, right? It was one of the, one of the add-ons. Yeah. Like after, you know, towards like you could get the game, then you could get the expansion packs and they came out with the novel and they came out with the poster and there was some other stuff too that I, I didn't um, jump on. I can't remember what it was. It didn't interest me though. So, so now that we've figured out why we're poor and they closed the damn mine, the mayor, and we can't go to work, you know, God's on Tacey, you're out of work. 
let's go to a sponsor. And you guys are probably dead. (laughs) (laughs) You've heard them on the soundtrack of Valentine Bluffs, a fan film. Now, see them live July 22nd in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania at Southern Rock Woodstock. PA's own Pocono Posse takes to the stage with their hits Back Home Again, Long Long Road, and more. Doors open at 1. Tickets are selling out fast, so grab yours now at ticketer.com slash southernrockwoodstock. And be sure to swing over to the Pocono Posse Facebook page for up-to-date information. Pocono Posse, Southern Rock Woodstock, Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, July 22nd. Be there. So now that we've heard from our sponsor, we are joined in the spooky studio by Valentine Bluffs director Tom Smith of Sick and Twisted Effects and the miner himself, Chuck Ryan of Chuck Ryan Cosplay. Fellas, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedules to hang out and discuss Valentine Bluffs fan film with us. Absolutely. Good to be here, guys. Thank you for having us. We're not even five full days into the release of your My Bloody Valentine fan film on YouTube, and you are already at almost 10,000 views. Uh, You're getting a ton of feedback, such as all killer, no filler, creative and Savini-esque, and far above the level of a traditional fan movie. Now, in addition, I saw last night that you got some love from Jim Merchinson, who plays Tommy in the original. Yeah, he's been he's been pretty supportive throughout the whole entire process. You know, even when we did the the concept trailers, he would message us and say like, "Hey, it looks really good," you know, stuff like that. Yeah, he's he's always given us really good feedback, and you know, has been a big fan of of what we're doing. He has said on multiple occasions, you know, how honored he is that we're doing this. Uh, my bloody Valentine fan film. He's been really good. That's got to be flattering to have people involved with the original appreciate and like what you guys are doing. And at this short a time to the project is being received so well, it's got to feel great after all your hard work. Yeah. It's, it's been um, pretty exciting. Like, cause it was a stressful time throughout the whole entire making from the very beginning through, throughout the post, you know, production. So to finally get it done and get it out there, have a really good premiere. It was like a packed house. Uh, have it have like a mini theater, like a theatrical release was pretty cool. And, and then, like I said, to get the reactions, you know, that people were giving us, it's pretty good. Like I said, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And uh, it was throughout this whole like entire time, it was just, like a struggle. So I'm, I'm happy with the way it's like coming out now. The theatrical release was fantastic. I was lucky enough. I was fortunate enough to be able to be there. And yeah, you, you couldn't even move whether you were in the lobby or in the theater. I kept trying to find like a safe spot where I wasn't going to get bumped into. I felt like the recluse against the wall, you know, it was jam packed. Fantastic time. So real quick disclaimer before we get into this discussion, um, if you're listening and you have not seen Valentine Bless the Fan Film yet, we are going to uh, probably have some spoilers within this conversation. So uh, if you don't want the spoilers before you see the movie, pause this podcast now, go to YouTube, punch up Valentine Bless the Fan Film, watch the film, and then come back. Unless you want to hear the spoilers first, that's cool too, so... But you just alluded a little bit, Tom, about, uh, you know, the production and the struggles and stuff. But I want to start with, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the backstory of how this project even came together? Yeah, so probably like three years ago, I had the idea, you know, basically in my head, just like, you know, just it'd be cool to do it because you're seeing all the Friday the 13th fan films out there. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, uh, but nothing from My Bloody Valentine. And My Bloody Valentine was always my favorite film um, as a kid growing up. It was a, the, you know, one of the films that made me want to go to special effects school. 
yeah, I, like I said, I had this idea and I thought it was like really cool to do a sequel to this film. And I just started like writing down some notes and I reached out to a bunch of people because four years before that, I, I went to, I was vending up at Cincinnati's Horror Hound, got a picture taken with this cosplayer in a minor suit. And that always stuck out to me because the details were so good. So I just started reaching out to a bunch of people on social media saying like, hey, does anybody know this guy? After a few weeks, someone got back to me and was like, hey, you should check out this guy, Chuck Ryan. Yeah, you know, I, I looked him up on social media, found him, you know, messaged him, and I was like, "Hey, I have this idea. You know, you don't know me. I was like, I have a picture from you, like with you from a long time ago. You know, would you want to be interested in talking to me about like help me do this like fan film, a sequel to My Bloody Valentine?" And at first, he was just like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." You know, it's like playing it really cool, and because you don't know, you know, you didn't really know who I was. I remember like trying to pitch him my best pitch, and then hanging up the phone and telling my wife he didn't really seem excited about that. <laughs> I don't think this is gonna happen. All right. And then like a couple of days later, you know, we, we still connected through social media, exchanged phone numbers. And, you know, eventually he was like, well, yeah, do you have a script? And I was like, no, not yet, but I will. <laughs> so I gave him a script. I wrote a script in like three or four weeks, just like a rough draft. Um, basically just off the ideas that I had. And um, I sent him a copy of my short film, Hunting for Justice. And I just let him know like, hey, you know, it's going to be a pretty good production value. Like, is it going to be like some backyard filmmaking? And he liked it. And he liked the script and he came on and that was it. That was basically how it started. And it literally was meant to be like a 20 minute short film with just like me and some of my, you know, my friends that were making films. It, it snowballed so quick into something much more. Um, we got hooked up with sponsors and this is all like Chuck. He can talk to you about this, but he about the whole like sponsors coming in, talking in a lot of pre-productions where it turned into a feature film. You know, it was a short feature film. It was like 50 something minutes, 55 pages or something like that. And then, um, you know, we, we decided to do the campaign because it's, it's hard to make a feature length film or a short film, knowing that you're not going to benefit from it like financially, you know, so to put like so much time of your life, I put like two years of my life into that film, knowing that I couldn't make any money off of it. So I was turning down like paying jobs and stuff like that to get the, you know, to get the film made, you know, and then after like a year and a half, uh, me chucking Rowan Keller, who came on as my producer, and these guys wore so many other hats. I, I call him a producer because that's what his main job was. You know, we we shot a teaser concept trailer, and then that's like we had a little bit of tragedy hit on that set where COVID hit, and ten people from that trailer, that film shoot, got sick. I ended up getting the worst of it, going to the doctors the one day and not coming home for two and a half months later. Yeah, I went to the, I was rushed to the hospital. I basically, I remember getting in the ambulance and then waking up a month later from a coma um, on life support. And uh, that was really hard. And then the hardest part was like, after all that happened, you fight to, you know, to get COVID. I had to like, I had like no strength. I couldn't walk. I had to go to a hospital, like a rehabilitation hospital, learn how to walk again. But not only that, like learn how to sculpt, you know, like learn how to use my hands again. So that was really hard. So that was like the biggest difficulty throughout the whole entire thing. Um, I was telling everybody I didn't want to do it no more. Um, I was, I was really afraid to go on set because of what happened. I just told everybody like, hey, you know, give me a little bit of time. I want to take some time off, go home, spend time with my family. It was basically like three weeks after I got home, I had the like the itch. I talked to my wife and I was like, I really want to finish this because I think it's something really cool, you know, and I think everybody's going to really like it. That was it. And we started back up and I learned how to like sculpt again and uh, create like all the stuff for the prosthetics and special effects. And I had a lot of help. My partner, Darren Pastor, he was a special effects artist. He came in, helped out. We had a lot of people that helped out, like a lot of people's names that are not always mentioned but there was a lot of people behind the scenes that were helping me. But yeah, you can talk to Chuck more about the sponsorships. That was a big part of like why it turned into a feature film. 
Well, I've, I've had these discussions with you guys before. In fact, I joked with, with both of you that if I would have recorded some of our phone conversations, that would have been our podcast episode. Uh, so, I mean, I, I know I know the story about uh, you getting COVID and, and going in the hospital. I guess I wasn't aware of the rehabilitation, though. What was the time frame of the rehabilitation? I can't imagine, you know, getting sick and then having to relearn how to sculpt and stuff like that. I remember they kept telling me I was going to be in the hospital for like six or seven months. And at that time, I think it was like close to the beginning of January. Um, I kept telling everybody that I'll be home to watch my team play in the Super Bowl. That's all I kept telling everybody. That was like the biggest thing for me. And it was like a month later. And they were like, no, you got to just prepare yourself because this is like a long struggle. Their rehabilitation was, if I would have stayed with their rehabilitation, I would have been there for six months. But I had my own private room. So I was like exercising throughout the whole entire day and night, trying to do it on my own. I remember like them coming into the doll, like their room and saying like, wow, like you're, you're getting there pretty fast, <laughs> you know, a lot faster than what we thought. And, uh, and I just kept saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I just kept doing it on my own. And I got home two days before the Super Bowl, like that, like February 2nd or something. I was out. I came home in a wheelchair. Um, I was in like a wheelchair for a couple of days. And then I was like, you know, I had like physical therapy, like doctors coming to my house doing all that. And then I went from like a wheelchair to a walker, to a cane, to walking on my own. And less than a month later, a lot of, like I said, a lot of work on my own. And like the doctors who came out here were really good. Like they push you. And then I still had to go like to, to a gym and try to like keep it going for a little bit in physical therapy. But overall, like I was able to get up and do things after like two months from being home. But to learn how to sculpt again, like that was frustrating. The first thing that I sculpted, like I kept messing around. I was getting really frustrated because I couldn't do it the way I know I could do it. The very first thing I sculpted from when I got home came a few months into the Indiegogo campaign where we decided to do a, a minor bust. So I sculpted that. That was the first thing. That was like seven months later. It was, it was tough because like I really didn't want to do it. I was getting frustrated because I couldn't do it. That was a hard time. Like it was a whole year basically before we really went back into it. But um, I said it was, it was really tough. I almost picked up that sculpture, but I had gotten so much else from the campaign. I, I passed. If I don't know in the story, I would have grabbed it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that, I, that was a tough time. I remember uh, I went out to Pennsylvania. We filmed the trailer. We specifically filmed trailer footage so that that wasn't going to actually be in our film i remember you know that was a good time that weekend that we spent doing that um and then like tom said then COVID hit and uh you know it wasn't long before we got word that you know tom was in the hospital and it's like wow this you know the seriousness stepped up really really fast there that was a scary time for everybody uh, i know tom and his family you know stayed in touch with them and and they were giving me updates but that was a scary time, you know, so there's a lot of emotion that got wrapped up, you know, not only in, in the film because of that, but just in general, you know, you never like getting that call. You know, Tom was in really good hands. He had a lot of support, obviously, from his family and people that are ma making the film. You know, we just we prayed and he started started coming around a lot faster, like he said, than the doctors were expecting, which was fantastic. But, you know, at that point, it's like, Tom, we just want you to pull through. We don't care about the movie. We we want you to pull through, man. Everything else is obviously, uh, you know, off to the side, shelve it, whatever. And then, yeah, Tom, Tom started doing well, was able to go back home, was like, this is excellent news. And I know he was on the fence about, you know, whether or not he wanted to, to finish the film. He was going to have our support no matter what. Whatever his decision was going to be, we were going to support it because none of us went through what Tom and his family had to go through. And you have to respect that. But when he, you know, he 
had that urge, like, hey, I want to finish this film. It's like, all right, you know, we're kind of back in business, but we we went about it very slowly. Obviously, Tom had to work at his own pace and and learning how to walk again and and normal day to day functions. But then, like you said about having to relearn to sculpt, you know, so that that kind of thing takes time. And I remember we were just encouraging him to take your time, Tom. You know, it it, it will come when it comes. And uh, so that was definitely a I, I hate to use that term because it's not a term lightly, but it's a setback, a big setback, <laughs> you know, with getting our film uh, up and running. But, you know, they say everything happens for a reason. And I think Tom came back even stronger and more determined. And so, yeah, I mean, we're just glad, obviously, that uh, everything panned out well with him and uh, we're able to, to keep working on this film. And it's been a ride. It's been a ride. You know, definitely some huge ups and downs. Tom's condition being the the worst out of all of it. Definitely been an arduous journey, a long journey. Uh, a lot of us had to make a lot of sacrifices and essentially put our personal lives on hold to do this, but it's because we want to do it. You know, we are fans first and foremost. I'm just really grateful that Tom uh, brought me in on this project. Well, when he, when he first contacted me, I was like, I don't, I don't know who this guy is. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what he's done. And uh, I was secretly like, oh, man, this is this is awesome. They wanted me to be part of this movie because My Bloody Valentine is my favorite slasher film. So, yeah, it was it was an honor. Definitely got to make some great friendships with Tom and Roland out of this whole project. And I didn't know I didn't expect that. I didn't know that was going to happen. A great ride. And I'm really, really happy that the film is being well received. The makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. So Valentine Bluffs is is really a passion project on multiple levels then just above and beyond uh being a fan of the original movie there's a lot tied into this that's that's fantastic and tom, like tom said he uh he's like i'm getting out of here so i can go home and watch my team play the super bowl if you guys don't know tom is a, a kansas city chiefs fan so if you're a, an eagles fan don't turn off this podcast we love you too during tom's rehabilitation and you guys kind of back and forth of is this going to happen or not Chuck, did you guys focus then on, did that, did that allow you the time to really focus on launching the Indiegogo campaign and getting all that stuff in line, you know, for if and when things move forward? Um, I don't think we really started working on that until after Tom knew he wanted to finish this movie. So, you know, once once Tom was healed up and well and the conversation started going, yeah, it wasn't long then that we started having discussions about crowdfunding. Tom will tell you we could we could write a book on the do's and don'ts of crowdfunding because neither of us had ever done anything like that before. Uh, we were just going into it all green. We had reached out to a couple other filmmakers just getting some tips and advice. We initially were toying with not doing it ourselves, having someone else manage and run the campaign. That didn't work out and we're like well i think we can do this and tom was tom was more than confident that we could do it i was a little eh, on the on the fence but in the end it ended up being the right decision yeah that was it was very daunting learning how to do, properly do a crowdfunding how to come up with different backer perks uh, what are we going to do for people what do people want it's easy to go overboard just have so much so many choices that it, it just confuses people and, you know, people want to support, but yet they, they just feel overwhelmed. So there's that fine line of balance of too few, too many perks. 
Tom mentioned before, our sponsors um, reached out to a few different people, uh, Fright Rags being one of them, uh, Nightmare Toys, and they've been fantastic. Uh, I'm going to slap myself now. Um, uh, Cabin 13, our uh, graphic designer, Corey Kaufman. Tom, help me out here. Am I forgetting for sponsor? <laughs> I think that was it for like the main sponsors. So that was good having having their you know their support and and backing and working with them. Uh, Fright Rags did a, an exclusive T-shirt design for us, uh, which is one of my favorite shirts. And um, and uh, so yeah, that was that was important. Uh, but we we definitely did our best. I think we put our best foot forward doing the the Indiegogo campaign. We went with Indiegogo as opposed to Kickstarter and some of these other ones, just based on advice from other filmmakers that we had, you know, talked to. And boy, we we made some mistakes along the way, um, especially never doing something like that before. But it really helped having Tom and Roland, you know, we all put our heads together and, and working on coming up with ideas. And then you have to come up with the descriptions for all these things, your price points, you know, what perks are you going to have? Who's going to be supplying these for you? And some of them we ended up making ourselves. Tom's uh, uh, minor sculpture bust. Uh, I made these uh, Valentine Bluffs light up signs, uh, a few different pickaxes. But you have to reach out to all these different artists and vendors. And, you know, and that, boy, that takes time. A lot, a lot of work. And I, I have to say, too, I have to say the success of a big part of our campaign went to the imagery and content that you saw, uh, the pictures of, of the different perks. And that was primarily our uh, graphic designer, Corey Kaufman, did a great job. I, I picked his ear, uh, I, I picked his brain on more than one occasion, just getting, you know, different advice on, hey, you know, what do you think about this kind of perk and, and be priced? So not only was he a good graphic designer, but a good consultant, if you will, Indiegogo campaign. And it was successful, you know? I was going to say, um, going back to, I think our first campaign was spring of 2021, I believe. We, My family and I take a, a, a vacation to Florida every other year, and that was the year. Spend two weeks down there, and this was shortly before we were going to launch our Indiegogo campaign. The, the the date was set up in advance, and I'm like, okay, you know, we should be okay. I spent every day... Uh, it was part of my day every day on vacation working on the Indiegogo campaign, um, you know, finalizing perks and descriptions and prices. And sometimes you, know, you, you spend more time than you should because you're second guessing yourself. You know, it's like, oh, is, is this is really OK? Should I change this and that? But family put up with me a lot on <laughs> vacation. And, uh, but, you know, it, it needed to be done. I knew by the time we got back from vacation, I think it was like four or five days from then we were launching the Indiegogo and there's, there was no going back. It's, it's out there already that, Hey, this is when the campaign is going to start. So, but yeah, that's, that's people know it was a true, um, uh, a testament to wanting to do this project. It's like, yeah, I worked on my vacation. <laughs> I remember even up to the minute that we launched it, we were having technical difficulties with the campaign. It was just, that was like a job in itself. Like I said, it took, you know, three people to do it certain things weren't right things like perks were disappearing it was crazy and this is like a minute before we we're ready to launch it you know down to the wire uh i will say that without our backers and supporters who have been tremendous tremendously generous with giving 
you know, without them, obviously our, our campaign would have failed. We wouldn't be able to do this money or, or, you know, wouldn't have been able to do this film. So we, we just, we had a really, really good outreach, uh, fans that wanted to see this done. Just can't thank our backers and supporters enough. Uh, it's, it's, it's you know, so cliche to say, you know, oh, we couldn't do this without you, but we couldn't. There's no way we would have been able to do this film. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who has backed us and supported us through this project means the world to us i tell you what it was a successful indiegogo campaign that's what drew me in and i mean brian and jason we're all collectors and what you guys accomplished with that campaign was like you say everything was presented everything was quality you had uh uniqueness you know the pickaxe the light up sign the sculptures the the miners do it deeper sign replica and a lot of these indiegogo campaigns i'm not trying to knock them but a lot of them kind of you can get a signed script or a signed poster which is cool but it's kind of a lot of the run-of-the-mill stuff where i mean you could tell that you guys have really put some time and thought into what you offered uh and it, it got me hook line and sinker and then i was talking with someone at the the theater premiere there at in uh at the pocono cinema and cultural center i overheard him talking to someone else about yo yeah this all the time that they had tied up in editing and just you know he was rooting for you guys saying this was a very lengthy process and i chimed in and i said not even not to mention the indiegogo campaign you know the when i came on for the the post-production one was able to get ink mirrors on there and offer some stuff we were on the phone for hours at a time discussing you know just that specific perk so i was, I was telling this guy like yeah a lot of time went into this but you guys launched a obviously successful Indiegogo campaign. You assembled a team. You got past, you know, Tom was able to recover from COVID and stuff like that. And you set out to start filming. And then you hit a myriad of, of setbacks. I mean, can, we, can we talk about some of that stuff? Um, yeah. So, you know, we had, I'll, I'll talk about some of the bigger ones because there's like you know, a bunch of little ones. When we first started casting, we had fully line cast um, and then the crew. And then now we're like a month away from shooting, or maybe like two months away from shooting, where we started like we had to reschedule things because like locations weren't locking in on them dates. So once we got to finalize, then we would lose some of the crew. Um, and they had to back out. And then we had to recast. The same with the the crew. We had a full crew at one time, and a month before we were ready to shoot, they all backed out. It was like one like one whole team. Um, they backed out, and then we had to go and try to find a whole new crew. And then that didn't go through, so we eventually just started like looking people like looking for people individually for what they do. You know, and that took a little bit of time. Like I said, that was like the main thing. You know, we had people schedule their flights, you know, and then when we had to like postpone it, push it back, they had to cancel flights. You know, we we had Airbnbs already like locked in. That all had to be canceled. You don't get your money back for these things. That's the bad part. So that was a struggle. And throughout this whole entire time, I was doing rewrites for the script, adapting to like adapting the script to what we had, you know, locations and and cast. They were the biggest things throughout the like pre-production um, before we got to shoot. Now, when we get on, sh you know, when we get on set, you know, some of the locations like Airbnbs, we didn't really see until we got there. So we had to change up things while we were on set. The scene with Nightmare Christie and Corey, that was changed completely just because of the location. We sat there for like an hour while we like before we got there and just like figured it all out again like another big struggle was like having such a skeleton crew you know we didn't have like 20 people crew we had it was basically like me chuck rowan my effects partner darren liz our ad who was tremendous keeping the schedule you know and this thing was all planned out like on a nine-day schedule which is insane yeah john picos our dp brandon leapart our sound guy um and that meant 
pretty much that was that was our skeleton crew, right? Yeah. So I mean, there was a lot of times when uh, the rest, you know, all all of us had to just share and and, and step up and do uh, a lot more that you know just needed to be done because uh, we just didn't have. We didn't have any PAs. We didn't have any personal assistants. Um, we didn't have a script supervisor. We didn't have <laughs> this or that. So people got to step up and do it. And uh, that was big. Uh, and the other thing, uh, the, the one one other, I don't know if it was a setback, but it was it was a surprise uh, when we were filming in the mine, the Pioneer Mine, when Tom, you and Roland, and I forget who else, went out to, to the scouting location for that, went in the mine and fairly dry in there. The ground is fairly dry. This was months later when we went back out there to film. As soon as we got inside the mine, we realized it looked like somebody had emptied a swimming pool in there. There was water all over. It was just muddy and wet everywhere. You know, the the walls everywhere. There was hardly any square inch of dry ground. That definitely was an obstacle that you had to just adapt to on the fly. And we had tables set up to set gear on. You can't set your, uh, you know, camera gear and equipment and stuff on on the muddy ground. So that was that was definitely a challenge. And then we ha- also had to end up modifying uh, some of the choreography for the fight scenes that we did too, uh, because uh, initially we were to be uh, doing some groundwork, rolling around in the ground, and if you're doing multiple takes, you can't get someone all full of mud start a new take and be like, oh, wait a minute, how did he get all that mud all over himself? So that was another challenge uh, for sure. Yeah, the, the location in the mine was a huge challenge just because of that. Like like Chuck said, when we went in there the first time like to scout it, um, it was dry, you know, and then when we went in there, it was like kind of raining on you, really crazy like that. So like, you know, there was a fight scene that was choreographed by Roland Keller. It was awesome, you know, like a lot, a lot of rolling around, like more like a realistic fight and we couldn't do it. So when we got in there, we had to like, do it again like you know try to figure it out like what we're gonna do the biggest thing was um a good team you know behind it that can think on the fly and and come up with that kind of stuff and um yeah roland was great at that um he definitely is a lot better at thinking on the fly than i am and when it came to that fight scene you, you know you can't just say oh well let's cut this part out pick up a little bit later in the fight scene it, it has to have it has to make sense it, it, it has to have a flow and uh, he was really really good you know roland has little bit of experience with that uh he's a, used to be a professional wrestler so he he already has that built-in knowledge of you know choreography and gave me a lot of tips and whatnot on how to act when i get uh, punched and and hit and and just the fighting so that was good but yeah that it had its challenges working in the mine for sure not only with you know you've got limited light in there uh it's cold i think it was an even 50 degrees or so in there maybe 50 it was so funny. Like it was like ninety degrees that day. We went in there. It was hot. As soon as you open up the door, it's like forty degrees. There's a sign on the wall, I believe, where it was saying like forty degrees in there. You know. So, but you see, like as soon as you open up the door, it's like a freezer. Like you walk into a freezer. It was so cold and it was wet. It was damp. It wasn't fun. I mean, it was fun to be in there. It was exciting to shoot like this whole. I remember getting goosebumps. Like you can write this all like you know all day long. But when I seen Chuck in the minor uniform in the mind i was like man this is so badass <laughs> oh yeah like a kid in a candy store man it was like i want to stay in there <laughs> for as long as possible it was fun you guys are talking about roland roland's great when i when i met him i knew that he had a professional wrestling background and i knew that he had uh you know choreographed the stunts which which wound up turning out fantastic but so when i met him knowing that stuff 
I look at him and I go, this is kind of like Roadhouse. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I thought you'd be bigger. Him and I are about the same build. He's not much taller than me. You know, he, he just kind of laughed. And you're like, yeah, I hear that a lot. <laughs> he sent me a video clip. You know, I, at one time I was like very big into wrestling. Me and my son, we would go to like, you know, events all the time and watch it all the time on TV. Um, and I still do it like once in a while. But I remember when he told me that, I was like, no way, dude. Like, really? Because he's so, like, he is small. But then he sent me, like, I, I seen a video reel of him doing it. And I was like, holy shit. Like, dude, he's like a high flyer, like, jumps off the, like, the top ropes and flips in the air and stuff. And I was like, oh, man, this is really cool. Again, when I say, like, people wear so many hats, like, you know, I directed it. I write and rewrite, you know, doing the special effects and stuff like that. But, like, Rowan and Chuck, man, like, they didn't get it. I felt really bad when they were on set, too, because they put a lot of time in helping me, like, finalizing the script. And they didn't, they didn't really get to see a lot of the stuff that we were filming, you know, because they were, like, busy, you know, building sets, finalizing this. And that was, it was, like, I felt really bad because I wanted them to be a part of that. Just because of the like small crew that we had, like they stepped up again. I remember, I remember asking Rowan, like, "Hey, what's the set look like?" He's like, "You'll see it when you walk on set. <laughs> it's not done yet, but it'll be done when you get there in like fifteen, twenty minutes." You know, it was definitely a challenge. This, I, I jumped into this whole thing totally green. Never worked on a a film before. Didn't know a lot of the lingo and terminology and stuff. And, and Tom and Roland really took me in. Never made me feel stupid like you know chuck you don't know what you're talking about you shouldn't be commenting on this uh, and then just really embraced me and uh threw me in and, and and just had to learn a whole bunch of things and it was definitely a challenge playing a character but also having to produce um and, and do those producing duties so when we were on uh, set when i wasn't acting in a scene i was doing something else um that needed to be done and it was very difficult to separate that try to get into character without having to think about well this still has to be done for this next scene and i remember uh we were all ready to film this uh, scene with the, the sylvia uh shower scene we had a a really cool uh, mannequin that uh, we rigged up to have uh you know to recreate that that scene of Sylvia's death in the original movie. We're ready to film that. And then uh, somebody I don't remember said, Oh, isn't there supposed to be a sign above that? Like, like it's, it's supposed to be an attraction. So there's supposed to be a sign there saying, I, I don't even remember what the sign said. Oh crap. Uh, yeah. Well, somebody go grab something. Uh, do we have uh, we have paint or markers or cardboard or something? And I remember I was all suited up in my minor gear and uh, like, yeah, let's, let's do this. And we, you know, Liz was, was so great because she knows how to do her job well, but she's so kind and polite about how she goes to do it. And she, she says, are, are we, are, are you guys about done with that sign? How much longer is it going to be? And well, give us a couple more minutes here, Liz, because we're doing this on the fly. But I remember whipping that thing together and there we go. There's our sign. So that happened a lot, you know, having to just yeah, think on the fly. It's like, oh, we forgot this. Tom, remember uh, we didn't have, uh, we needed some liquor or booze or something for, some scenes in the bar. Again, I think somebody made a special run to go get some booze. We needed we needed booze <laughs> and uh, for for you know filming a certain scene. So it was daily when we were filming, constantly doing all kinds of things that oh we, we just either didn't think of you know ahead of time. And it had to be done. The one time that was really funny to me was uh, well hard for him. Rowan he was acting in a scene and we were in Stewartsville, New Jersey, and then he had to leave drive to New York City, pick up Lloyd Kaufman, which was like an hour and a half away, come back, 
and then get right back into acting. That kind of stuff was like crazy, you know, and, and he was fantastic, you know, doing that role. It was just like, it was just hectic, like that kind of stuff, you know, so, you know, people don't get to see that kind of thing going on behind, you know, behind the scenes. So we are working on like uh, behind the scenes footage and stuff like that. Like I'm making of the movie. Um, it's just a matter of time, you know, trying to put that together. That's going to wind up being on the, the Blu-ray, isn't it? Or is that the intention? The behind the scenes was going to be like on a digital download kind of deal. You know, we were planning on doing that from the very beginning. And the only reason it was funny, because the only reason we wanted to do that is because we didn't really know, like, how the processes of, like, making Blu-rays and stuff like that. So we didn't know, you know, how to get them, you know, get that stuff over to these people who were doing it. So, yeah. So we just, like, automatically said, all right, we're just going to put a digital download out of, you know, out there of it. It makes sense why there were daily booze runs on the the, the production of this film. Hey, Brian and Jason, I don't know, I don't know if you guys know this, but to to go along with what they're talking about, the uh, the scene in Valentine Bluffs where they're in the um, the minor uh, museum, where Roland and I, I apologize, Penelope, I think the actress's name is, where they're walking through and stuff. I found out that was no bigger than the size of a small stage. And they basically just on the fly built these like thin hallways. And uh, it blew my mind when I found that out, because when you watch the film, it looks like this expansive labyrinth of, of museum and stuff. But no, it was just this really small space. Pretty cool stuff. Just that movie magic. Um, we had a studio and we had like two, it was basically like two rooms that were like 2,000 square feet. So yeah, that whole museum, it was, it was more than the museum too. It was like the the, the, uh, the Miners Museum where they walk around. Photo studio was like right next to that. And then the office that Kelly, Rachel, the girl the girl plays Kelly, um, where she's texting her boyfriend, um, that was in the same room also. You know, so like we had kind of three sets built in this like 2000 square foot empty room. Um, and again, that's something that we never did before. So it was like we had me and Rowan and uh, our sound guy, Brandon, and my son, Shane. Um, we would build like these movable walls and stuff like that. And then when Chuck got down there, he was more like setting it all up and decorating it with Rowan, you know, and that's that, that was the one set I was telling you, like, I was like, hey, how's it look? We're like shooting like right next to it and they're building it while we're shooting. It was crazy. It was cool because we, we uh, some of those walls that were constructed uh, were, we built them out of, uh, we had pallet boards and two by fours, and then we put them on casters so we could wheel them around, position them. Definitely got creative with that uh, minor museum scene and just made use of moving these walls, having the actors walk down one way and then they walk down the opposite direction just switching up camera angles so it, it definitely gave the perception of being a lot bigger than it, than what we had to work with uh we made really good use of the space well and tom like you and i had talked about coming i, I think coming from a haunted house background probably helped out in that situation a little, little experience of doing crazy on the fly building like that in small spaces um, one thing it was funny because one thing that I really never done before was lighting certain spots just for that shot. And that was like, you know, we had a lighting guy on set most of the time, but Roland Keller was the one like basically was like help like setting that up and, and calling the lighting shots. Again, like the director takes a lot of credit for all this, but Roland did a lot of the setups for lighting, um, the test lighting and stuff like that for me. And I could just look at it in the camera and say, okay, yeah, I like that. Or I didn't like that. Or, you know, just change this up a little bit, but. Um, he was very big one because like, we didn't have enough lights to light a whole entire scene. So we would light one certain spot and then move the lights over to this spot and then reset that up and do that. So um, he was very good at doing that. And I think that's why 
you know, when people ask me, like, what was your favorite shot? Like, what was your, you know, favorite scene to shoot? And, you know, the mine was awesome. Like, obviously, you know, that's everybody's favorite. Um, but that to me was the, my favorite stuff to shoot only because of all the work that we all put in to make that happen. It was fun. You know, it was like a learning experience and, uh, um, to get creative like that and move things like move walls around and then light that one little wall up. Pretty cool to see that. And then like, you don't know how it's going to turn out until you get like, when you're in post, you're like, you're looking at it. You're like, uh, cause I remember like, I remember being on set and was like, man, that looks like shit. <laughs> you know, it's like, I hope this looks good in post, you know, I hope we can do something, but it was funny. You know, it was, it was like a fun process. And to me, that was like one of my favorite things to shoot only for that reason. And again, this was all done in nine days i mean 10 if you count the there was a pickup pickup day or you guys revisited the mine for so i mean all done in, in 10 days absolutely fantastic Go, going back just a little bit um i just wanted to touch on you know you were talking in the beginning about uh scheduling setbacks and stuff you guys initially had well like daniel roebuck was attached you had some um original cast members from uh, my bloody valentine dave sheridan felicia rose and um you know due to the the initial scheduling setbacks and everything uh they weren't allowed you know or able to be a part of it but you did manage to land richard john walters who uh, those listening if you don't recognize the name played the minor uh played harry ward warden in the beginning of the my bloody valentine remake from 2009 and then you wound up having uh, lloyd kaufman attached also so how did how did that come about having those two involved when we first did it um dave sheridan was supposed to play the bartender and he was someone i really wanted to work with he actually brought felissa rose on at one time you know at that one you know when we were talking about it and we kind of had it all worked out and then like with scheduling and stuff like that it just didn't happen danny roebuck was always you know meant to play the mayor it's like i, I we, we finally like you know reached out to him early on we had a date kind of lined up he was only in town for like one day um and that's because i know he was shooting his film up here which i like i got to work on that film and make a prop for him and stuff like that so you know we met up with him and he was re he was really cool one of the like nicest guys i ever met you know when we had to reschedule everything he was going to be working on the monsters so he couldn't do it and then you know we ended up getting richard waters for the you know the one scene or like the bartender scene that was just like reaching out to someone we were trying to get somebody that like that was in the valentine you know my bloody valentine franchise uh well for not franchise but the two films yeah and, and we did have other you know people locked in from the original film again it was all like scheduling you know it just didn't happen you know these people don't live close so it's it's hard like all right we have we only have this one day to shoot this one person can you make it and they were like well we'll try and then you wait a couple weeks and then it doesn't happen so that, like that's usually when it, like that all how that went down with the actors Louis Kaufman you know we're all like we all grew up like watching trauma so it was like you know just a fun fun character and I met Lloyd a couple of times throughout in, you know the whole like convention scene Courtney is the lady who plays the news reporter at the end she is really good friends with Lloyd Kaufman um it's and she I believe that's his goddaughter and she had mentioned, and she's friends with Rowan, and she had mentioned to Rowan, like, hey, can actually get in touch with Louis Kaufman. And we are like, oh, wow, that'd be pretty interesting. You know, he wouldn't be as serious as, like, the, the character Danny Roebuck would have brought to it, I think. But he brought, like, a comedic, more hated thing to it, you know, like, in a funny way, which we thought was really cool. So, you know, we reached out to him. That all went down. That was actually really simple you know it was like a matter of a phone conversation and then talking to his assistant working out the schedule payment and stuff like that and then landed him and then he was on board yeah he added a perfect quirkiness 
to the the universe that you were expanding on. I loved it. Daniel Roebuck, I've always been a huge fan of. He is a great guy. I saw him at Motor City Nightmares a couple years back, a convention in Detroit. And I just, you guys had just sent me some flyers for Valentine Bluffs. And so I was helping to promote and he walks by and I just yell, I said, excuse me, Mr. Roebuck, can I interest you in a Valentine Bluffs flyer? And he just gets this big smile and he comes over and goes, can I get a picture of you with that? Make sure Tom sees that, you know, and yeah, he, he's a great guy, but uh, it really worked out having having Lloyd a part of it. it. It just added a whole another dimension. Cool stuff. I'm not grown up and I'm still watching trauma movies weekly. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I did see some reviews out there, you know, that Lloyd Kaufman was not the right character, like the right person to fit this. Cause it was like, he brought that whole like quirkiness to it, but you know, it, it was meant to be like that, you know, like he's a shady person. He's doing something that nobody in that town really wanted to do, you know, and, uh, and was making money off of it. You know, him and the bartender and the sheriff, they all were kind of involved in it. You know, if you watch it, like there's a, a scene where the girl, Ginger, the girlfriend gives, um, the bartender an envelope and he says it's from Moderman, you know, it's like money. And then the sheriff is like, you know, obviously taking money from him to, to make this all happen. But none of them are really happy about it. When you think about it, like Louis Kaufman was the only villain, like the, you know, really the main villain in that, that we wanted to try to make everybody go, wow, I hope this guy dies, you know, what a piece of shit. But he brought like a comedic part to it. That I thought was really funny. And, and that was something that I hope people catch on. Like there's, there's some like funny one-liners in there that we all came up and put in there. I hope that, you know, people get it. And uh, we, we just wanted to bring out some like, you know, comedic scenes in it, you know, try to balance the, the horror with the comedy, you know, I tried to keep the horror away from the comedy, but I, I thought it was pretty funny. You know? No, it was. And then in addition to the, the names that you had attached to this, you had a, a lot of talented I don't want to say no-name actors, but not as known. And I'm not going to mention everybody, but just a few that I enjoyed from the film. Rachel Keefe, who played Kelly Hanniger, she she's an absolute scream queen. She killed it. A lot, lot of talent. Corey Kaufman, uh, I mean, he's just a natural. I loved watching Corey. And I don't know the name of the guy he was sitting at the bar with. He had kind of like the zigzag beard. He was the bartender in your concept trailer, John. It, watching him and Corey go back and forth, that was a great scene. Brandon Leeper, who was your sound guy, Brandon's a great guy, and his whole him dancing at the Valentine's party was hilarious. Yeah, uh, Roland, Roland's a natural. You know, he played Murphy, and obviously he wore many hats. Roland, I, I loved his uh, portrayal in the film. And then lastly, uh, Christina Munn, who played Ginger, best kill scene in the whole film with the pickaxe. That was cool. Actually, uh, when when I left to come home from Pennsylvania from the theater premiere, I thought uh, I should have uh, should have asked Christina for her phone number, and I didn't. But oh well, a lot of talent. Yeah, I worked with a lot of the the cast members and and you know earlier stuff that we've done, whether it was on my film or you know, my short films or um, other people's films. Rachel is one of my favorite actresses to work with. Um, I knew right when I was writing the script, I was writing her in for a scene. You know, it was, it was so weird too because she would like again the script changed so much. What, what people were seeing in the final film was far from the original script. You know, like T.J. Hanniger had two two girls. You know, um, there was you know two boyfriends involved with it, and um, Rachel was supposed to play the girl that comes into town with the boyfriend. And I remember when we shot the concept trailer, Chuck stepped in to play the guy who comes into town and Rachel's with him. And it just, that is the most, like the most awkward couple I've ever seen. Like, so like Rachel so young compared to like all these guys that we were like bringing in to like be the boyfriend or the son. Yeah. 
say it. I'm old. Huh? <laughs> I remember making that call to Rachel saying, hey, I want to recast you for, you know, this role. I, you know, check it out. And she was like, oh, my God, I love this one. You know, she got back to me. She's like, I really love it. I, I feel more for this character than I did the other one. So, yes, I worked with Sarah, the girl who played Abby. And I knew she would be really, she would knock that shit right out. You know, like she was really good. The very first person I cast it, um, other than Chuck as the minor, was Jeff Swisher, who played TJ. I've worked with Jeff before in my short film, Hunting for Justice, and um, he he looks like Paul Kelman. You know, just I think he looked like more of a, a more in shape version of Paul Kelman. Like he had a long beard, um, and that was something that we were going for. You know, so he was afraid. And then Mike Sutton, who played Johnny, the sheriff, I worked with Mike before, and he's awesome. You know, he can... You know, he he can bring a character to life, you know, and, and how I direct on set is more or less like I give a lot of like talks with people. Like we had a lot of pre-production meetings and, and conversations with them and we would go over this, you know, the scenes and the, the character and the dialogue. And then when we get on set, most of the, you know, most of the people will bring their A game on set where I don't really have to stop and be like, no, it's way off. No, no. You know, so pretty easy directing people that, you know, are going to bring the love to it, you know. So it make, makes my job as a director much easier, which was very helpful for this because we were doing so many other things. Well, and I thought you did a good job of the the legacy characters that were incorporated in this film. I could visually see them being an older version of that character. Even the the actress who played uh, plays Sarah in the beginning, when I saw that, I was like, I can picture the Sarah character looking like that as, as she's older. It wasn't like a jarring, what's this? You know, it worked out well. You know, talking about talent, uh, Chuck obviously played the minor. I think he's what kind of between your idea, Tom, and, and your script uh, and, and Chuck's portrayal of the minor doing cosplay conventions, I think was the spark for this thing. But Chuck, you essentially played, and we were talking about this the other day, you essentially played three characters in this film. Can can you talk about kind of like, I don't know, like your inner direction of, of how you were playing the minor in these different ways? Yeah, well, Tom pretty much let me do my thing when it came to the minor. I mean, you know, he, he gave me direction, but tell me too much of how to play it because he, he, you know, he knows I already know that character. Yeah, it was, it was fun to don the suit for sure. Not the most comfortable thing in the world, uh, but um, it just feel like a badass. Uh, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. And it was, it, it, it felt really good knowing that Tom trusted me to, to do that character. He knew I was going to do it justice. It was a blast. I, I, I can't describe it any other way. It was a blast to be able to uh, portray a character that's uh, from one of my favorite movies since, uh, you know, that I've been a favorite movie of mine since I've been a kid. And um, I, I have to give a, a shout out to Peter Culper, who played the original minor, gave me some advice and pointers on how to just how to embody the minor. And I, I really appreciate having some chats with him on that too. Uh, just getting his perspective and, and that helped a lot. Um, but really it's, it's something just shifts once you put up, put on that mask, the costume, and you've got the pickaxe in your hands. Um, you just, uh, it's like a, a switch kind of gets flipped, but yeah, it was, I mean, I do it again in heartbeat. Uh, I, I love cosplaying that character. It's a fun character to be. Everything from the neck down is comfortable when you're in the costume. Everything from the neck up sucks. <laughs> you know, you got limited vision. You have no peripheral vision. Uh, you're looking through dark tinted lenses. So in any dark environments, it's 
it makes it that much harder to see. Your lenses get fogged up over time. Even though I rigged up a little fan inside to help kind of mitigate that, eventually they do start to fog up and you have to take a break and uh, defog them. And that's a little bit of a process. You know, you just don't lift the mask up and defog. You got to take off the hard hat and you got to take off layers upon layers. And it's hard to hear with everything on as well. So everything is, it's like you have uh, kind of like these headphones right now without without any sound coming through. It's just very muffled. And then in trying to speak, obviously not when we're shooting my scenes, but when I'm trying to ask people something in, in between takes and things like that, uh, very hard for other people to hear me. So I have to yell almost when I'm when I you know when I've got the mask on. I remember talking to Chuck quite a few times on set. It's like, what? What'd you say? <laughs> Wait, I can't hear you. It doesn't matter. He's like yelling, and uh, and I'm trying to like tell him what like we were looking to do, and he was like, huh, huh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm like, what? And Tom's saying what? And <laughs> but uh, it it uh, it got to be a little grind after a while. The longer, at least for me, I've got a weird shape skull and I must have a pressure point right on the top of my head because it's a it's a five point harness strap with that gas mask and that that top strap needs to be cinched on pretty tight because the hose wants to always pull the mask down to the ground so your your neck is having to try to pull it back up and come combat that weight uh, uh, the, the 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 strap on the mask pushes on that a pressure point or whatever. And ap after about an hour, I start getting a headache. The longer I stay in that, the harder that hurts. And eventually it gets to a point where I got to get out of that because my head just feels like it's going to implode. But, you know, Tom, Tom and everybody were, was, was always very understanding in that. And fortunately I didn't have to be in the costume for hours and hours on end. Usually we get, you know, a, a break uh, in between scenes where it looked like I could at least take the mask off and get a little bit of a breather. You know, all all that suffering is still totally worth it <laughs> to be the minor. Well, and you were you were talking about the uh, you know your peripherals gone and stuff like that, and you know you're not able to hear as well. So I can only imagine that like uh, the, the fight scene at the end in the mine between Jeff Swisher's TJ and you as the minor, you really probably had to really focus and pay attention, you know, to make sure that no one got hurt because that was a great fight scene where you guys are swinging shovels and pickaxes around a lot of concentration. Thank you. That is my, my favorite scene to act in and my favorite scene as a viewer to watch. Uh, the fight scene was awesome. Uh, again, that, that, Scene is what it is uh, due to uh, Roland's choreography uh, and uh, John's phenomenal camera work uh, capturing you know, in the moment there. But yeah, as far as um, uh, it, it took 100% focus. I remember, I think before we did that final fight scene, trying not to sound like a jerk, but just telling everybody, everybody, get out of the way. I, I am not going to be, I, I have to concentrate 100% on, on what I'm doing with Jeff. And I'm swinging around. Not only my prop pickaxe, which is still dangerous, but we were swapping out a real pickaxe for some of those scenes as well. And so it's very, very serious business. I don't want to hurt anybody for real. And uh, there's a lot of precautions that needed to happen. I, I remember John, cameraman, he wanted us to just run down the, the entire scene so he knew where he needed to be. So he wouldn't get hit uh, and just, you know, pl uh, get hit by, you know, shovel, pickaxe, whatever. Yeah, it, that, that, that I can say definitively was 
the one time where I was 100% focused on doing what I was doing, mostly because of the safety issues. It was really cool. Jeff Swisher was fantastic playing TJ. He trusted me 100%, and I trusted him 100%, and you had to. You had to, otherwise that scene wasn't going to work. It would have looked phony and and you know we we did our best and i think it ended up looking really really good on film there is one scene during that fight where i I knock him down he falls to the ground and he's he's laying there facing me he's propped up his legs are out in front of him spread out a little bit i remember saying boy tom wouldn't it be cool if i i took the pickaxe and i swung down and it hits between his legs close to his crotch and i've seen i've seen that in a few other films before, something similar. I said, that would be really cool. I think I did that with the real pickaxe. Again, total trust there between us actors. The way it was shot, I think we just ran out of time. We weren't able to get the camera angle from um, Jeff's perspective. But if you're looking for it, you can see it. The camera is actually behind me, so I'm kind of blocking uh, what actually happens, but I, I come down with a pickaxe really close to uh, Jeff's crotch. We were supposed to have this little moment where I look up at him and his eyes look up at me and we have that, you know, that look together like, yeah, that just about happened. You know, <laughs> you just about lost your, your manhood there. And so it was going to be kind of one of those not laugh out loud moments, but just the, whoa, you know, the time constraints on this entire shoot were always plaguing us uh we did not get you know all the shots or camera angles that we wanted to we did our best with the time that we had so that was that was a struggle i know for for tom and and john and a lot of us just oh we really wanted to get the shot it's like boy as thomas said before if we had a bigger budget and four or five more days to film oh that would have been ideal but uh you know you what you can we, we definitely i think we would have needed like at least four or five more days to get all the shots that we wanted like like chuck was saying like you know a lot of it was like one take and we're done kind of deal or like one angle and that's all we have time for one of the biggest this is like a huge thing for me like the big setback was once we were done shooting you know we, we i was communicating with an editor and he would get it back to me like three or four months and i wasn't happy with it and I was like, hey, can you try to like do this again? And then we wouldn't hear back from him for a little bit. And we got to the point where I was like, we were editing the mind scene and I got it back and I was like, I, I don't like this. You know, um, it was very one shot, one angle, you know, from a long distance. And I, like I said, I'm, I know why it's because we were like, you know, pushing for time and we had to get, you know, we had to get out of there really, you know, much quicker than I'd like to. It got to the point where we waste, like, I don't want to say wasted, but like six or seven months went by where, there was, you know, I wasn't getting the footage that I liked. We kind of like talked about it and we're like, Hey, you know, we're going to go with another editor. Um, John stepped in the camera guy who like we edit, I learned how to edit. I was editing scenes and I would get it to John to finalize it, um, to clean it up and stuff like that. Again, it was like six or seven months went by with nothing happening. So that was a big thing. But when I, the first, first thing I noticed was like, I wasn't really happy with the mind stuff. Brought it up to everybody like, hey, we should really think about going back into the mine, you know, or like, you know, trying to recut it some way else. And I, I know that was like a little a conversation is like, you know, trying to come up with the budget for it and, and getting back in there and seeing if we can get everybody to actually go in there again. And that happened like two months later. 
you know, we went back into the mine and I had this fight. Like I had the idea of like, I wanted the more like the fight scene to look more action packed. So I wanted to move in camera, not like a one shot deal. So I, like, I talked to John about it. Um, John's very protective of his, his equipment. So he, you know, he really stepped out of like his comfort zone to shoot that for me. Cause I remember him being always worried about his camera getting hit or him getting hit. But like Chuck said, like a lot of trust was put into it on that fight scene. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad the way the final fight scene came out knowing that, you know, I didn't really like the first one. And, and it is a somewhat the same fight scene. It's just different angles and more movement, um, which I thought was a lot better. I was going to say when we, uh, when we went back into the mine, uh, uh, for a second time, uh, there was some other things that we did that time around that we didn't the first time we went in there. Uh, we, we got to do a really cool scene with the uh, with the deputy uh, played by Michael Kramer and the mine cart. Uh, so there was a scene between the deputy and the miner there. That was we didn't do any of that the first time we went in the mine. So that was really cool to to do that and got some really great footage out of that and just uh, you know a little bit more more action going on in the uh in the whole mine sequence there that was a big thing for me it's like i I wasn't really because the mine was the very first day we shot the original that was the first day of shooting um our sound person canceled out the night before so there was like a lot of stress going into that shoot that day and a lot of things were missed so like i think that had a lot to do with like not liking the way the footage came out and the way it sounded so when we actually went back in there i had a month to prepare because I knew we were going in there for a certain day and it was like a month away. So I wanted to make sure that we were 100% like going in here. We got one more shot to do it. Let's make it right. You know, I came up with a shot list for John, made sure that he knew that um, the actors like again, went into like choreographing, you know, the fight scene a little bit bigger. I'm like uh, the deputy's death scene was completely changed. Um, we're like, oh, let's make it, you know, a little bit more brutal, like give him a fight scene and stuff like that. Um, his original death scene was basically he was walking, he gets snuck up from Chuck from the back and gets hit in the you know in the back with the the pickaxe, um, which would, that actually looked really cool. Um, but we just wanted to like get something a little bit more like dynamic for him and create something a little bit more entertaining for the the fans. We were like really prepared to go back in there that that second time, and uh, I think it shows. No, it it does, and I'm I'm actually glad that you guys were able to go back in there and get that additional death scene because the the mine cart skull crusher scene was great and and one thing that I, I love about this film also is and i'm gonna i'm gonna name off my top three brian jason i don't know if you're gonna agree with this or not but it, you were able to incorporate uh some great kills and um tom obviously with sick and twisted effects i mean you know you you came up with some great special effects for these kills but i absolutely loved it i think it was the second kill where the the kid gets his eye sliced and it, it uh, transitions into the heart of the sign. The kill itself was, was pretty cool, but I mean, it was kind of a basic kill, but the way you transitioned that into the edit of the sign was, I remember being in the theater about dropping my popcorn. It was, it was pretty cool. And uh, how can you not talk about Christina Munn's pickaxe in the mouth death, you know, and kill and getting dragged off and the sound effects that went with it. It was, it was really brutal. But I think one of the ones that I really liked the most was uh, Roland and Penelope's death scene where, you know, they're getting into it. They're laying down on a table or something and the miner comes with a drill bit and jams it between them in between the back. And you took some time to really show it going in and out of the back, which made it very, very cringy. But something I thought was interesting about that is the uh, YouTube premiere of the film. There was a live chat going on just for that one 
first showing on YouTube. And we're all sitting there chatting with each other and all these fans of the film. And when that scene came up, all these people were like, oh, they're they're paying tribute to Friday the 13th Part 2. And I almost wanted to chime in. I was like, no, because if I remember right, that was a, an edited or a death scene that was supposed to be in the original My Bloody Valentine that got, I don't even think it got shot. They just shot the idea down, right? It was shot in the editing. It got lost. Yeah, that worked out. Yeah, that was uh, that was something that when it came into the whole like campaign thing, like we knew we wanted to do it, we just didn't have enough money to do it, um, didn't have enough time to do it. Uh, when we hit that stretch goal, that was a big part of like adding that scene into it. I, again, it's things are done on a, such a tight schedule. Like I wish I could always look back and go, hey, I wish we would have did this a little bit different, or I wish we would have done this for that scene was always meant to to be in there it's just a matter of like and, and the fans really helped that scene get in there because they helped us get that stretch goal and that scene was added in yeah but it was it was definitely like a homage to that scene that was like deleted or not put in the film it was just something that was like i wanted to see it in there you know i, I would i wish it would have like i wish i would have got some some footage of that scene so i can see it because it looked so good you know it would have been good you know to see so to create the the effect for it was a pretty fun thing to do. Um, as far as Christina's death, like, yeah, obviously that's going to be everybody's favorite death scene, including mine. Um, it was fun to do. What I really liked about it was it sounds easy to wait it. Like if I describe how we did it, it was like, Oh, that's real easy to get to that point was like a month of like talking to my partner saying, this is what I want to do. How do we, how do we do this? Like to make it look good on the camera and show it all in one shot where she's alive and it's in her mouth. So you don't matter just like drawing it out, you know, coming up with the the rigs to do it and then to do it. And nine, you know, here's the thing too. So many times where you get on set, you have one shot to do the effect. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to. That one worked pretty much how we wanted it to work. And that's why I was like really happy with that. Um, I've done where it's so gory over the top, you know, and I, I, I guess I've, I've done that. Yeah, I didn't want to do it for this film because I like to do like effects like more realistic. And I'll say this, and, and this came from another artist and i took this to heart he said if the effects artist shoot like does it the way it looks in real life people wouldn't believe it because there isn't like gun you know gallons of blood you know when people get stabbed there's no bleeding until that knife comes out so i try to like keep everything a little bit more realistic instead of like over the top like i said because i've done that and I, I feel like this was not that kind of film i wanted to tell a story and if we would have went over the top, people would have just like if we would have like went over the top on every kill, like no kill would be memorable. Like people wouldn't go, okay, that that pickaxe in the mouth wasn't so special because they've done that throughout the whole entire time. You know, um, it was just a core fest, and I didn't want that kind of film. Like I said, I've I've done it. It's fun as an effects artist. I like to see that kind of stuff, but I also like to see things a little bit more realistic, shocking people. You know, with shock value of like all this blood. Again, I, I've done that, and you know, it doesn't make a good movie. It just makes the effects look pretty cool, you know. And that's again, I wanted to tell a story here, you know, and that was my first priority. But that effect scene really stood out to me. Like that was like probably one of one of the coolest things I've done. And it's not like I said, it's not the goriest thing that I've done, as far as like making the effect and and making it work and do, and accomplishing like on set how you think it was going to be like a month before that. You know, it was really cool. And if I tell you this too, it's so funny. That wasn't the goriest effect that was supposed to be done. The goriest effect was supposed to be Abby's death scene, the first girl, the girlfriend. Hers was like supposed to be really brutal um, because it was supposed to be like a passion death. Like, and it was more like the 
to shy away like who the killer was like you wouldn't think the boyfriend would do something like that because it's really violent and brutal so it was meant to be really brutal like she was supposed to have her face smashed into the car window pulled out cut with the glass um and her face the shape of a heart you know like that prosthetic that's on rachel at the end with the heart in the face that was supposed to be on her um and then she was her chest completely like cut open and ripped open breaking the rib cage um, and then pulling the heart out. Like, it was written to be like that. Again, time, you know, um, the, the glass thing was supposed to happen. We did a, Roland Keller did a test run on fake glass. Because we were having such a hard time getting it delivered, like getting fake glass, like, made and delivered. He made, like, sugar glass, right? Wasn't it, like, a type of sugar glass? You know, Roland got, got it figured out, like, how to do it. And um, he did a test run for it. It worked perfect. And I was like, all right, cool. This is going to be a really cool effect to do. And then um, the night of... You know, we had the glass already, but it wasn't curing fast enough. And for some reason, we just didn't get to do it. Yeah, it was like really sticky and there was bubbles in it and just didn't work out like it did the night before. You know, again, like it's so weird to say, like the blood gag didn't work the way I was hoping for. You know, there was like issues with the tubing. Again, we had to call cut and then figure out like how to do this or how to do it right and make it look good. So what you see on screen is basically what we did. Corey and Corey and Christina's, uh, Corey and Christie's death was supposed to be completely different. How it was written was they were supposed to be on the floor kissing. He comes walking through the house, pulls her off, hits Corey in the face with the, the mini pickaxe, throws her down, and she kind of like lands on top of him, like close to the pickaxe, and then he stomps her head into it. And then they kind of like come together like kissing face-to-face and with the pickaxe in both of them. But that was all changed up when we got there just because I loved the location and I wanted to utilize like the hot tub and the basement yeah that house was great uh, it had so much character it was that was that was actually one of the airbnb houses that we housed some of the uh cast and crew in and it just it was like an old farmhouse it, the production value of the the basement and uh some areas in the house we just couldn't pass up so tom made the call it's like hey we're gonna we're gonna shoot a bunch of scenes here and so it worked out really good you don't, you know, in the, in the original film, you don't really see the miner walking around a house, you know, so, and like to give it that stalking kind of moment. Um, so I thought like that'd be fun to try to introduce that character to that, that scenery, you know, like walking around a house, like stalking people. I thought that would be pretty different and fun for that, like the miner to do. Well, and I thought the death scene with Abby still had that brutality because I was telling Chuck this, I think yesterday we were talking, the miner, he doesn't take the time to stab someone 32 times or he's very blunt he just he does what he's gonna do he, he takes you out and he goes away but that death scene with abby you know he stabs her you know multiple times and i think that's actually what brought the brutality and then when when you do get the reveal that uh the killer is the boyfriend spoiler alert um it may it makes sense because you know it's all each stab was probably him, you know, getting back at her for yelling at him because the toilet seat wasn't down or telling him to stop watching the game or whatever, you know, like, oh, bitch, die. Ah, ah, you know. No, it had that brutality. You know, throughout throughout our discussion, um, we've talked about you guys have really faced. So I'm going I'm to say this. Valentine Bluffs does not need an excuse to be a good film. It's you guys sat out and made a great, a great film, a great fan film. It's getting, it's being well received. People are clamoring for a sequel. I, I already put you on the spot, Tom, at the, uh, at the premiere and said, Uncle Lloyd says at the end of the film, there's going to be a sequel. And you kind of looked at me like, shut up, Clint. So I'm not going to ask, but a theme that, that, that comes through these stories is what Brian and I have joked about. And we call now 
the curse of the miner. You guys uh, have faced a lot of adversity, uh, both personally and professionally, to to have this project come off the ground. L- a little side story, quick little little funny story for people who don't know it, but the the, the curse of the miner continued, and that is at the uh, the theater premiere in Pennsylvania. Chuck. Chuck's playing got delayed, canceled, all kinds of stuff. He barely made it for the last what twenty minutes of the movie, I think it was. Yeah, boy, that you know, I was supposed to fly out there the day before, you know, the day before the premiere. I wanted to get out there in plenty of time. Didn't think there was going to be you know any issues. Uh, weather looked like it was going to be good, and uh, yeah, my first flight got canceled out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Anybody doesn't know I live in Wisconsin, so that I've got a little ways to travel. Not only you know for making the film, which took place uh, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, but uh, that's where the premiere was going to be held in uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, first flight got canceled. There was no other flights going out of Green Bay that day and uh, didn't have a choice but to fly out the next day. So that already made me pretty nervous. I was starting to get stressed out. And then um, I made it to, uh, got a connecting flight then from uh, Chicago to Pennsylvania and the Chicago flight, uh, they didn't have a crew to fly the plane. So they're waiting for a crew, uh, delay upon delay. And I'm, I keep checking the time and, uh, I knew what time the premiere was going to start. And I'm like, boy, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm definitely not going to make it for the start. And then I was getting nervous. Like, am I even going to make it period? Uh, finally crew came from another arriving flight We fly out. I start making some arrangements for uh, an Uber lift uh, to, to take me from the airport uh, when I land in Pennsylvania to take me from the airport to the premiere, which was 45 minutes away from the airport. And I'm doing all the, the math in my head and thinking, okay, what, you know, what time am I going to get there and everything? We uh, were landing in Pennsylvania and I checked my phone. My credit union flagged the Uber lift purchase. It's like a suspicious you know, fraud alert. And so I'm like, okay, great. That that never even went through. So as we're deboarding the plane, I'm walking through the, the terminal trying to book a new Uber Lyft on my phone. Uh, it says, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you your driver details in one minute. And then there was a countdown clock. And I'm just staring at it going, come on, come on, come on. Finally, it says, oh, your driver is here. He's driving, uh, I don't think it was a white uh, Civic. Uh, this is a license plate. I come out the doors, and I didn't stop walking this entire time. I come out the doors of the airport, and I look uh, parked by the curb. There's the car. I, he says, hey, are you Chuck? I says, yeah, are you Jeff? I think his name was. And he says, yeah. I'm like, let's go. I threw my stuff in there, and I'm encouraging him to speed <laughs> to get to the premiere. And I, I knew the movie was had already started, and I got there, uh, and I think I got to watch the last 15 minutes or so. That was my eventful trip to the premiere that I almost missed. So I'm just grateful that I got there and at least got to see, if I didn't get to see the movie, at least got to see the cast and crew and some of the fans that were there to support us. So that that was good. But yeah, that was the curse of the minor right there, Clint. Yeah, well, I was talking with Brian. He, I got there and he sent me a message. He said, you know, did you make it? And I go, yeah, here I'm at the hotel. It's 50 and sunny, man. It's kind of nice. This is great. I was like, Chuck's not here though. And he's like, what? And I was just kind of giving him a rundown of what I had been told. He says, oh, it's that curse of the minor. And Brian and Jason, I don't know about you guys, but it, it kind of sounds like like me trying to travel into Iowa. Just I just won't do it anymore. Bad things happen. 
So you guys have had a, a successful, well-received launch. You're getting a lot of love from fans, from peers, from you know everybody, top to bottom. But I, I, I wanted to ask you guys, kind of in closing, like what's next for you uh, together or separately? Like Tom, Chuck, do you guys have other projects lined up or anything we can talk about or not talk about? Um, yeah, I, right now we're taking a little break for a few days. Um, like I said, spend time with the family because, like. Chuck said, "When you're when you're shooting, you're you're away from them. Even when you're home, you're not focused with them. You know, it's like you're constantly trying to focus on the movie and and doing things. So, spending time with the family, also preparing for an anthology that we're gonna do, um, called the Sick and Twisted Tales. That's gonna be the next thing that we do. Basically, it for right now. You know, it's just a matter of coming up with the the concepts for that. Like we have a few things lined up, but it's just a matter of like getting in pre production and working out everything with that film. Um, but that's gonna be the next thing." I believe we released. Well, and Tom, you just did some effects work on, um, I can't remember the, the name of the project, but you released some photos and it was like this kind of like green kind of booger ogre type monster that I thought looked pretty cool. Yeah. It was, you know, brought on to create some props and um, this creature for like this little comedy skit kind of deal um, for the Bob fest. That's, Basically, that's pretty much all I know for it. It's called a bug. Uh, it was cool. Like I said, it was like even Roland Keller stepped in, came in and helped out, created. So like he got into the effects scene. I was like, hey, I need some help because you're kind of the same size as the guy. So come over and wear the suit for me while I do this. But he helped me like make all these like little prosthetics that went on the suit. My son Shane got it like to help out with special effects. And now Roland wants to learn how to do all this stuff. So he's going to come in and help out a little bit with uh, me and Darren. Chuck, do you have any projects coming up or is it just more focused on your cosplay and, and scaring the hell out of people like conventions? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no film pro projects coming up, but you know, depending on uh, what it is and the timing and stuff, I mean, I'd, I'd love to work with Tom again, but yeah, we're going to be doing, I think some uh, uh, conventions coming up to promote the film. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. And uh, of course, any, any chance I get to get any chance that I get to get together again with, these guys uh is is always a fun time so yeah i'm just gonna keep doing my cosplay thing and, and uh, definitely break out the uh the minor uh a time or two at these uh conventions so look at, looking forward to that i saw a comment from uh, some random lady from some random convention you were at i don't remember which one or who she is but Apparently she was in an elevator going up to her room or something and you were there dressed <laughs> as the minor and scared the shit out of her. She's like, I was legitimately scared for my life, you know, because you were, of course, you put that on and you're automatically in character. And I forget where it was, but she had found out it was you and, and plugged your name on it. But Oh, how neat. It's, it's fun. I, I, I enjoy doing those shows and interact with uh, not only fans, but just fellow uh, cosplayers and uh it's a good time getting pictures with people and uh, occasionally getting a good scare or two out of unsuspecting victims. So <laughs> yeah, I know he's a, a big hit when we, we went in Chicago, people were just like, I was sitting at the table and people were like, where's the minor? Where's the minor? And I was like, he'll be here soon. And like not realizing how long it takes Chuck to get into that costume. I'm like, yeah, he'll be here soon. You know, and then like half hour passes and he's still getting ready. <laughs> and people just kept coming up to us and like, Hey, where's, you know, where's he at? Where's he at? We want to get pictures with him. I'm like, yeah, he'll be here soon. <laughs> you know, it's like an hour later, he comes down. Like, I mean, people are really excited to see him in the costume, and uh, it's really cool. Didn't mention, like Chuck said, like we are going to hit a couple of conventions and, you know, to promote the movie. So just don't know which ones yet. Yep, the curse of the miner. He can't even get the costume on in time to get down to get photos taken. The curse of the miner. Everybody, you can go to YouTube 
and you can just type in Valentine Bluffs a fan film. It'll pop up. Or Tom, what's what's the your YouTube channel where people can subscribe to watch this film? Um, we's in Hollywood. Um, that's I guess you just search that up, or if you just search up Valentine Bluffs fan film, um, everything comes up for that YouTube channel. Where where can people follow you on social media uh, to find out about upcoming projects? Search up Sick and Twisted Effects. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I'm really not very big on social media. Um, I'm not on there very as much as I should be for someone who's like trying to promote work and stuff like that. Um, I'm I'm actually like a very private person. Kind of weird, but if if it wasn't for like the film, I'd probably never be on social media. I just see way way too much drama on social media, and I, I just try to avoid all that. Um, a lot of negative people. I see like a lot of people like bash filmmakers or stuff like that. And I'm not all about that. Yeah. But if you want to search it out, like I do try to get on there, you know, once in a while and I do answer like people's questions. Uh, I know the first night it hit the YouTube channel, man, it was up to like five in the morning answering people's questions. And I just appreciate like everybody watching it, you know, and uh, I take the time. I want to take the time to answer everybody personally. The biggest question I've seen come up, a lot was uh, Kelly's death scene, you know, how she walked out of the mine and then she's, she's dead. You know, there's a, a, a funeral scene um, that seemed to be like the most confusing to people, but just to give you like, you know, everybody heads up on that really quick. So when we first shot the mine scene on the first day, she was, it was always meant for her um, to get killed. She was much more beat up. Um, we actually shot footage of Chuck really like beating her up in the in the in the photo- like the photography studio. So she was much more like gored up and and cut and stabbed and stuff like that. And when we went back into the mine scene for the reshoot, we didn't have time to do all that. We ended up using a lot of that footage for it, and we shot her in a completely different like position from the original. So we couldn't use any of that footage. So yeah, that was like uh, a big thing. And then like people can die of tra- you know just trauma and, and shock. You know you don't need to be like you know bloodied up to die. So we just kind of left it in the imagination of the people. Like she went to the hospital and you know she just passed away. But it was always meant to get that reaction. Like oh wow, like I didn't expect her to die. You know, and then when she does die, it's sad. And then right away we give you that up moment seeing Axel. That was always meant to be like that, so I hope people do get that. That that was my my only hang up of the film was yeah it was kind of jarring and uh, I was like oh well, yeah she wasn't that messed up like yeah she was pretty beat up and you know disfigured a little bit her hand got ripped up with the nail I was like and all of a sudden she's dead but the film was was good enough to where I saw it and I was like that's kind of weird whatever and then again yeah you said it so I can say it I was I was going to but then I held off but axel lives you see axel at the end and just for for hardcore long time my bloody valentine fans at least for myself when i saw that it was just like and i completely forgot about my little hang-up you know and i was just like oh this is awesome axel's still around look at the prosthetic and all that and very cool so yeah people who haven't seen this film yet even though we just told you about it it's a lot better when you see it there's a treat for you at the end of the movie and actually there's a treat for you maybe it's after the credits when Uncle Lloyd says that there's going to be a sequel. Yeah, that was strictly all him. It was, uh, it was kind of funny that he said <laughs> that after he just got killed. So, Chuck, where can people find you on social media to uh, to see what's going on with your cosplays and, and if and when you land new movie deals and stuff like that? Instagram, uh, you can search under Chuck Ryan Cosplay. Facebook, the same same thing, uh, pretty much just on Facebook and Instagram. So, uh, yeah, I, I try to post on there fairly regularly, more, more Instagram than than anything so yep you want to see what i'm see what i'm doing see what i'm up to uh check me out on there 
Is, is there anything else that you guys want to something that we missed on something you want to get out there? Nah, just uh, enjoy the film. You know, it was a fan film and it was, it was uh, done by fans for the fans, you know, so that's pretty much it. Enjoy it. We tried to bring something to the fans that they've been, you know, demanding for many, many years. And I really hope we, our tribute to the original does justice to everybody. So again, thank you for everyone who's uh, seen it and uh, supported us along the way. It's been, it's been great. So yeah, we're, we're just taking it all in right now. Well, we appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to sit down and discuss this film with us. Everybody go check it out. Valentine Bless, a fan film. It is worth seeing. And, you know, there's something that's worth listening to also, and that is the PFPN, our podcast network. So let's hear from them. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. Now that we've heard from our podcast network, the PFPN, it is time for a question. And we have another one from our friend Ted from Ted's Custom Gumball Machine Emporium and whatever other 72 words are in his <laughs> the name of his business. All right, so Ted asks... He says, you have to be in one, so we can only choose one one of these three movies to be in, okay? Would you rather be in The Thing? Would you rather be in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Or would you rather be in Human Centipede? Which one do you choose? So are we actors or victims? He didn't specify, but knowing Ted, he probably wants to know victims. I just thought I'd add that back in since we talked about it before. My answer is the same for both from from both standpoints. So I'll go. You guys don't. You go. You guys don't seem so sure. So I haven't seen honestly uh, the Human Centipede. I know what it's about. I don't know how it ends. So can I choose like what position in the centipede I would be? <laughs> and then you're the metal. Is there one better than the others? No, I would take the very first one because <laughs> I'm not getting asked so to my face. That's a tough one, though. That is a good question. Great question. Human centipedes out because I'm not going to take the chance. The thing. Oh, I don't like. I don't like being cold and being hunted by the thing or Texas Chainsaw. I, I would. I would choose Texas Chainsaw, and I would be the guy flying past on the highway in the car, not fucking stopping in that town asking for directions. That'll be my little cameo. Just me, me hauling ass right through town. Would you be in the restored 4K version or the original grainy cut? (laughs) Oh, the grainy cut. Can't tell if I'm in a Mustang or a station wagon. (laughs) Just a hauling ass. You ever you ever see when in like I think it was seventy seven or seventy eight the version of the Mustang that came out then it looked like a little moon boot it looked like a a gremlin with the Mustang front end it was terrible. <laughs> Brian Brian which which one are you going to be in? So I'm kind of going along with Jason. I've seen all three Human Centipede movies. I'm not sure you're surprised of that. 
<laughs> not only is your ass sewn to someone's mouth or vice versa, depending on where you are in the centipede, he also cuts your Achilles tendons so you can't walk. Ugh. So you're down like in on all fours and you can't walk. It's not fun. I don't like the cold, although if I was in Tex Chainsaw Massacre, I'd have to ride in the van with the dude in the wheelchair, and that's fucking annoying. <laughs> I will go with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, hoping that I get some good fucking barbecue, and then they can kill me. I mean, I'll be good. <laughs> You're going to die either way. Like, just fucking feed me first, and then you can kill me. I don't care. Take care of me, Bubba. Well, you know, you know what kind of barbecue it is. Though. I don't give a shit. I, I, <laughs> You're going to die. Who cares? <laughs> If you're going to eat, you either get shit, you get beans in fucking Antarctica, or you can have barbecue. I'm going with barbecue. Does sound good. Yeah, barbecue. What What about you, Clint? What's for dinner? You know, I got some leftover pulled pork that I made the other night. I think I'm going to go up and have a pulled pork sandwich. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm not going with human centipede. I mean, you know, ass to mouth is cool, depending on how much alcohol is involved. But I'm not, I'm not going... I'm not going with human centipede. The thing I'm not going with, because I, I can't stand the cold either, and I didn't I don't really don't feel like being cooped up with a bunch of dudes. So I'm going with Chainsaw Massacre because there's hot women running around and I actually have a chance to survive that one. So and I didn't even think about it, but like you say, good barbecue. Now I'm hungry for barbecue. I haven't had lunch yet. Well, Ted, thanks for the question. It's not the weirdest one we've ever had. Borderline weirdest one we've ever had, but maybe top five. So now that we've heard our question, what are we up to? Anything? Besides eating lunch. We're all going to go eat lunch after this. It's funny you brought up eating after I said ass to mouth, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm hungry. <laughs> Boy, we got that explicit logo on this uh, This from YouTube mm-hmm. on this episode, didn't we? Oh, yeah, for sure. So let's see. This episode drops March 5th, if you guys were listening on day of release. I got nothing going on st patrick's day so whatever's coming up for that that's within two weeks after this coming out no big plans yet but we'll see what comes down getting closer to the con season i'm super itching i mentioned it every episode but i haven't been to one since october so what what do we have going on brian you you just let me know By the time you hear this episode, I would have already done my guest spot on First Time Podcast with Tad Good. Um, We're covering Pink Flamingos because I've never seen that one. So look for that on the PFPN um, Podcast Network. I will be doing another guest spot covering my top 10 cannibal movies with Don Anelli on his podcast. That's March 15th. We record that. I'm not sure when that one comes out. Um, And I know when I saw Tad... I was lucky enough to go see Tad and watch My Bloody Valentine the Saturday before Valentine's Day. And he's in talks or he's thinking about showing a movie every month that would coincide with the holiday that month. Yeah, so he's talking about showing Leprechaun next month. Tiffany won't go to that because she thinks it's scary. Really? Yeah, she's like, I don't know. I'm not going to see that. I'm like, what? That is not a scary movie. She doesn't like Jennifer Aniston? Uh, Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. So that's all I, you know, just some stuff coming and convention season. Was lucky enough to go hang with some friends from Death Stitch on this past Friday and watch Eaten Alive and Jungle Holocaust. I mean, I don't know how lucky we were, but it was fun to hang out and watch some movies. And Eaten Alive was something. 
there's a, a couple scenes in it and i'm like oh my gosh oh you missed it i feel weird watching it in jungle <laughs> holocaust they come up on this lady and she's screaming and you're like what is she screaming about what are they doing a baby falls out she bites the umbilical cord off of it and puts it in the water and the alligators come and eat it or croc crocodiles and i'm just like in new guinea the crocodiles eat babies yeah eating alive was a you ever seen eating alive clint the not the one was robert england the not the I have not, no. It sounds like a, um, a shock cinema that you need to see, though. So think any cannibal movie in the jungles of New Guinea. The head of the tribe is Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Looks just, looks like it could be his brother with a little Jonestown sprinkled in. You know, the Jonestown Massacre where it's a cult and it's a... That's that movie. So there's lots of ass to mouth, there's Kool-Aid, and there's satanic rituals. Yeah, that's the whole movie. What is not to love? That's all I got going on. I'm starting to learn that the you know jungle cannibal movies are not for me. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was Jason lovely. laughed after Jason left after the first one. He's like, I think I'm going to go home. <laughs> one, I was tired, and two, I was like, okay, yeah, that's that's probably good for me tonight. <laughs> he wanted barbecue. Don't let him lie to you. <laughs> what about you clint you got anything going on nothing that i don't normally talk about on every show i am gonna say uh j- last night was it last night no two nights ago uh i went out to eat with ted from ted's marvelous custom gumball emporium and uh we were talking about conventions and we were talking about some decals for his machines and just you know different stuff like that At the end of our conversation we really got to talking about filmmaking about you know actually producing film not talking about people who have done it. And so it brought me back to the writing project I keep talking about that I keep putting off. I think it's because I'm afraid to start it because I know once I do, it's going to consume a lot of my time. But here pretty soon, I'm going to be out of time. You know, once it gets warm, you got to start maintaining your lawn as well as hitting the conventions and doing all the other stuff. So I'm going to try to force myself to really sit down and and get this thing started. Um, Other than that, like I say, just the running shirts, running toys, doing stuff, going here, taking care of my girls, you know. Life. Life. Heavy. Barbecue. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we've heard what we're up to, why we're poor, our podcast network, the Valentine Bluffs guys, and about ass to mouth. Don't forget to check us out on our socials. I like it. Spooky horror podcast on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and wherever the hell we are on the internet. There's probably some other stuff we're there and we don't even know it. You guys have a good day and take care. Bye bye. Bye. Make sure to go to YouTube, check out Valentine Bluffs, the fan film, and you can see my name and Brian's name. No, I died in the mine. No. I'm coming back in the sequel.
Hey, what's wrong with you, man? Show some fucking respect for the dead, will ya?